Well, justice is a wonderful thing. Um, on the front page of the newspaper I picked up this week were two justice stories. One story followed new evidence against a woman now being charged for murder for serving up deadly mushrooms she said were served by accident. And there's a big difference between a terrible mistake and murderous intent, and so police are looking to see which, which was it. A second story was of the capture at last of an Australian crime boss uh, by police in Turkey. How good it was to read of justice being pursued so that truth can be uncovered and good prevail over evil. Justice is vital for the good of humanity, but justice alone is cold if it lacks other traits alongside it in society like love or mercy or rehabilitation or restoration. And so in our legal system and in our world, there is often a tension between justice and mercy. The greatest advocate and pursuer of justice in the world, of course, is God himself. So what happens when his chosen children, Israel, his treasured possession, his holy nation, what happens when justice demands that they be exposed, sentenced, sentenced, destroyed even? How does God's justice work together with his mercy? And what does that mean for people like us? That's the site that we're going to behold today, that tension, God's magnificent justice in tension with his extraordinary mercy and how this forever impacts us. If you're following in your outlines, point one there, our just God says, wayward from the beginning, destroyed in the end, chapters 9 to 10. Um, Chapter 9 tells the sad tale of Israel's fall through God's eyes. And as the recap um, showed us, this is not a new message for Israel. Um, And so it's repeated again. Another analogy, and the first verse sets the scene, chapter 9, verse 1. Do not rejoice, Israel. Do not be jubilant like the other nations, for you have been unfaithful to your God. You love the wages of a prostitute at every threshing floor. God withholds the blessing of spiritual, religious rejoicing, Israel's jubilation, verse 1, or the blessing of bringing to God wine offerings and sacrifices, verse 4. Instead, you'll fill your own guts with your food. I don't want it. Verse 4, the food will be for themselves. It will not come into the temple of the Lord. The festivals, verse 5. The feast days, um, your treasures, verse 6. Reliable prophets sent to guide you, verse 8. All of it gone, withdrawn. Richness of life in fellowship with me, your identity and sense of self as individuals, as a community. That can't continue in relationship with me. Recently I heard a pastor sharing from the heart that for him, he can't imagine his life without church anymore. It's an interesting thought experiment, isn't it? Sometimes we think of church as a duty, something we should do, somewhere we should be, things we uh, feel duty-bound to do. But for mature Christians, the we of church and the we of God with us become so intimately tied to who we are. Perhaps it's time you gave thought to that. Where would I be without God and church? Hosea leads us to imagine the same thing. Now we know from Romans that nothing can separate us or condemn us as God's adopted children forever. But imagine if God said, sorry, you've done it. 
You've pushed me too far with your compromised, lukewarm excuse for a life of faith. Don't bother anymore with church, with home group. Just go home. Don't give financially for my sake. I don't want your dirty money contributing to my kingdom. Forget your rituals. Forget your festivals. Let Christmas and Easter have no relevance for you. Don't bother reading my word as though I'll bring it to life for you. Don't pray as though I'm interested. Don't sing songs or hymns. My rituals given to bless you are being withdrawn. You've chosen humanism, atheism, selfish living. See how well they serve you. To those of us who truly know and love God, who realise he is our life, this hypothetical rejection would be unbearable, even though it is the path most in our society think it wise and best to choose. Their spurned, faithful husband finally says to his wayward wife, Okay, I relent. Depart from me and all that is mine. It's a foretaste of hell where God's goodness recedes further still. Verse 1, do not rejoice, Israel. Do not be jubilant like the other nations. Our just God says, wayward from the beginning, destroyed in the end. And then another waywardness leading to destruction analogy from verses 10 to 17. Notice the pleasantness of the image. It doesn't last even for one verse. When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. That's a nice image, isn't it? God enjoyed the process, it seems. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. But when they came to Baal Peor... Now, God doesn't give empty accusations in Hosea. Sometimes it's through code words, like a a place name, that Israel or, or we as Christians can read back and see what is the reference he's making here. But he gives place names that ring sad bells. What happened at Baal Peor? Well, the summary is there for us in verse 10. They consecrated themselves to that shameful idol, Baal, and became as vile as the thing they loved. If we go back to Numbers chapter 25, verse 1, we can read more of the story. It tells us about the incident at Peor, which is now named Baal Peor, to rub it in. While Israel was staying, uh, Numbers chapter 25, verse 1 says, While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women, who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. God's saying, look at your history and realize nothing's changed. It's no wonder the just and holy God has to say enough. At some point, and that point is drawing near, 722 BC. Idolatry as well, if you see that last uh, verse, it dehumanizes us. They became as vile as the thing they loved, verse 10. Idolatry dehumanizes us. We who are made in God's image become less like him the more we worship things other than him. We degrade ourselves with worship of things around us. The more shameful things we do, the more shameful we actually become. We've seen him withdraw the joy of religious festivals and rituals and here God withdraws more, verse 11, their glory from them and his protection from their ruthless enemies. See in verse 11, Ephraim's glory will fly away like a bird. 
They went to Baal for fertility, so I will remove the fertility. Because I, not Baal, have been the one giving it to them. Verse 11. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception, fertility removed. Even if they bring up children, I'll bereave them of everyone. Woe to them when I turn away from them. I've seen Ephraim like Tyre planted in a pleasant place. But Ephraim will bring out their children to the slayer. We've seen children killed recently in, in, uh, in the media. It's ugly now and it's ugly then. Uh, things get ugly when God's common grace, uh, the way he preserves or prevents evil from happening to the extent it might otherwise happen, his daily restraint of evil is in play today and it shouldn't be taken for granted Sometimes he lifts that back and allows more to happen. The judgment we see in the Old Testament may seem extreme to us for good reason. Uh, What humans did to each other and what they still do to each other under God's sovereign watch and even his greater plan, we have to say. Much of it is anti-life, inhumane, horrific, repulsive. But some people make the mistake of responding to this message of the Bible with something like this. I don't like what I'm hearing in the Bible. I think I'll give God and Christianity a miss and go for a more peaceful message, something spiritual or new age, or I'll put up a nice statue in my home. I'll find a church that only says nice things and I'll hear about rainbows and butterflies. Um, As a country pastor, one of the most popular songs uh, for people who weren't Christians was All Things Bright and Beautiful. Rainbows and butterflies. I noticed on Norton Street, Leichhardt recently as I was driving past, there's a new gathering place, I think new, that sounds a bit like a church. But I imagine without these kinds of harsh realities in them, of judgment, it's called the Sydney Centre of Self-Realisation Fellowship. Sydney Centre of Self-Realisation Fellowship. I don't know much about it. I had a quick look at the website. They have meetings on Sundays and there's some upcoming lectures from Buddhist teachers. Judgment is repulsive. And scripture realises it's repulsive. But because it's true, warnings really are worth hearing. God's message to Israel is the same as it is to the, today to the world. These warnings of judgment to Israel were not to make them feel good, but to avoid the judgment that was really coming. It was a loving warning and message. But the message remains the same for our world today. For life, come to me. For death, keep going to things other than me. For the sake of time, I refer only briefly to the same pattern in chapter 10. Picking up the analogies now of Israel's idolatry being like a fruitful vine that went wrong and a wayward calf. Um, Happy in the one one stage, but then taking on a great load and and miserable on the other and, and wild. In both cases, these analogies, they they desert God, they build pagan altars and choose false religion over the living God. Looking down at chapter 10, verse 8, which describes one of the the forms of judgment for Israel, but also describing a judgment coming to all those outside of Christ. The The end of chapter 10, verse 8 says, Then they will say to the mountains while being judged, Cover us, and to the hills, fall on us, cover us over from the worst judgment that's out there. 
Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, Jesus' teachings and the book of Revelation might come to mind. These are quoted from Hosea here. And these are New Testament warnings, not of an Israelite judgment, but of a global judgment coming. Revelation chapter 6, verse 15 says, for example, Then the kings of the earth, not just a king, the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us. From whom? Well, it's from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. This great symbol of mercy and salvation, the sacrificial one, is the one now that the world is afraid of. Revelation 6.17 says, For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? God's judgment is not safely contained to the 8th century BC, a thing of the past, but the world is today still being warned of a future judgment. Justice will be served, and those of us who love justice can look forward to that day. If you aren't sure that you're safe from God's justice, find out and do something about it. Uh, We often have two ways to live, booklets in the front and the back, just on the exits, and these are a really good way to see what the Christian message is and to respond and call out to God for, for forgiveness. Because if you call for mercy, you can be sure you will have it. The door is open. The judgment we see on our TVs of war and um, upon human bodies is terrible, confronting. But scripture would have us know that it is mild and temporary. The death of a body is temporary compared to the unending death that follows death. And that's why we can know that it is far wiser, far better to endure the wrath, the anger, of the cruelty of persecutors in a Siberian prison camp, in prison for following Christ, than it is to renounce Christ the Saviour. Renounce Christ and you'll get out of prison. That happens all around the world, North Korea, Vietnam, China. All you have to do is renounce Christ and we'll release you. How wise they are to hold on to Christ. To deny judgment is to mock the millions of Christian martyrs and the crucified saviour they follow. Chapters 9 and 10, then we see the pattern. Our just God warns Israel and humanity with them. Wayward from the beginning will lead to destroyed in the end. Well, if that's God's justice, his right justice, how does this sit together with his mercy? Our merciful God, point two in your outline, says, wayward from the beginning, yes, saved in the end. So far in Hosea, God has powerfully used the husband-wife analogy to help us see what is so bad about sin in God's sight. Idolatry is spiritual adultery, and human hearts love idols. It's money, sex, reputation, this or that pleasure, this or that adventure, living for a certain image that we want to become, parents idolising education as as the most important need of a child, or raising kids to think success matters more than godliness. There's no end to our waywardness and the forms that they take. It takes. As Hosea's message comes to an end, what hope does God offer then? 
he seems to say, and I'll use a father, I'll use a father-son analogy to get their attention here at DPC this morning, that they, if they haven't turned to me yet, will turn to me. Notice God's tender love for his son, contrasted with the boy's rebelliousness toward his father. He recalls the saving, um, he recalls saving that slave nation, if you remember in the Old Testament, out of Egypt. And he gives, if you haven't read the Old Testament yet, he gives a potted history of Israel. Chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. It's extraordinary language for God to use, don't you think? God who is infinite, holy, glorious, perfect in himself, and in no need of our worship or our respect, in need of nothing. In Hosea, God lets us see He is the God who loves us, verse 1, calls us, verse 2, teaches, leads by the arm, heals, verse 3, leads with human kindness and love, lifts a little child to his cheek, bends down to feed them, verse 4. It's amazing language for the God of the universe to use. And as we do read through the Old Testament, we can see he does just that again and again and again. I have loved you. I've kept showing up for you when you humbly come to me. I love you better than the best and most compassionate of, of fathers. It is this love that explains then the anguish of Hosea 11, the turmoil, the heart-rending. The God of perfect justice is the God of perfect love and mercy. He can't turn a blind eye to their sin And so hear how heavily heavily their sins weigh upon this father. Verse 5, Will uh, will they not return to Egypt? They will. And will will not Assyria rule over them? They will. Because they refuse to repent. Yes, justice insists, verse 6, that a sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. And you might remember the the timeline I showed where Israel comes to an end and Israel's hope moves south through the line of Judah. These things will happen to the northern kingdom. Verse 7, My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God Most High, I will by no means exalt them. True, 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 we, we say as we read on. Necessary, 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 looking through the eyes of justice. The wages of sin is death. Wayward from the beginning, judgment at the end, yes, it must be, and yet hold on. Next we see something in our glorious Saviour won't let go. If you wonder what God's heart is like, there are fewer Old Testament passages more revealing than this one. Listen to the anguish, verse 8. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Admar? How can I make you like Zeboim? those destroyed cities near Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 14. My heart is changed or recoiling within me. All my compassion is aroused. Justice, yes, but verse 9, mercy. 
I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. Why? Because of his exceptional capacity for mercy. My mercy, my love for you, will find a way to satisfy my justice. In God's own words, verse 9, I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man. A man would say, give justice. The Holy One among you, I will not come against their cities. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. What he does as a lion will be mighty, decisive, effective. And what is the effect? Verse 10, when he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows, weak, humbled, but welcome. And from Assyria, fluttering like doves, I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. In the same breath that I declare judgment is coming, I declare there will be a retrieval mission. Yes, history records some did go as fugitives to Egypt, verse 11. Some went, many went as captives to Assyria, verse 11. But the end of the story sees them brought back. God says, I will bring you home, you're mine. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. Wayward from the beginning, and yet without violating his justice, mercy will somehow triumph over judgment. Let's see how that works in point three. Out of Egypt... God called his son for us. Love wins. This is written about 750 years before Christ. How then did Jesus and the first century Christians read Hosea's ancient message in light of what followed? How will God judge and yet mercifully save? Well, let's reflect a little on the first verse of Hosea 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt... I called my son. Now, if you notice in the text there, there's a a small s for son. Um, The word son is occasionally used in the Old Testament to describe the nation, a people, Israel. I called a nation out of Israel and treated them like a son. But Matthew's gospel would have us retranslate or reread this verse with a capital S. Out of Egypt, I called my son. It's a prophetic masterpiece. It looks back to Israel's rescue in the past from Egypt. And yet at the same time, it foretells Israel's greatest rescue that is still to come in the future. What do I mean? Well, it's nearly Christmas, so you might turn over with me at Matthew chapter 2 and we'll read a a Christmas passage, page 1501. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, page 1501. Matthew 2 verse 1 says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. And the Magi asked, verse 2, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. A fresh era of worship is beginning, by the way. And um, they're coming from the east, Assyria, Babylon, Places of exile where where Israelites were mixed into the people. Now we see wise people coming from the east to worship. 
Verse 13, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. What a sad irony this is in Israel's history. Another dark moment. Things are so bad in Israel that their infant boys have to go to Egypt for refuge. Egypt, the place where Pharaoh would try to kill the Israelite boys knowing that a Messiah is going to come. Herod is trying to do what Pharaoh tried to do and failed last time. Verse 14, so Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Hosea 11 verse 1 is looking back, but it was foretelling the future. That Jesus would be a refugee who would flee to Egypt. This is not an irrelevant historical detail. It was so that God could call his son, this time his capital S son. Jesus, the embodiment of true Israel. Jesus, the true Israelite Israel. Was the, the Israelite that Israel was meant to be. The true son would start in, uh, in Egypt in order that Israel's history be symbolically reset, reenacted. That's why Jesus, a few chapters later in Matthew, would be tested for a symbolic 40 days in the wilderness. He's reenacting with faithfulness this time Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. Out of Egypt I called my son. That led to judgment. Out of Egypt I call my son. That leads to mercy. Because where Israel 1.0 failed, Israel 2.0 will succeed. God's son and all who are baptized into his name are victorious. Israel deserved God's wrath. Jesus will come to take God's wrath on the cross. And so Hosea's words were far more glorious than he could have known. Out of Egypt I called my son. The mysteries have now been made known. The hints and shadows of Hosea, faint outlines of the Old Testament now, light, colour, boldly visible in the person of Jesus. How will justice and mercy resolve themselves for us? Well, our judgment has become our judgment bearer. Our judge has become our saviour. What kind of judge will take the penalty for the criminal? God will. It's news worth a lifetime in a Siberian prison. It's news worthy of our praise and thanks, our cheerful readiness to sacrifice in our Western way in a place like Sydney, our gold and frankincense and myrrh, any kind of service of Christ and his church family, renouncing our preferences when called to, and all the while delighting that he even receives such gifts as these from us. And so we can read again Hosea 11, this time with hearts full of appreciation and thanks for Jesus. How can I give you up, Ephraim? My heart is charged within me. My compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. Israel's religious leaders, still corrupt of heart, would call him demon-possessed. But the demons themselves, ironically again, would see Jesus and say, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. 
For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you, says Hosea. Wayward from the beginning, saved in the end. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Love wins. Um, In our household, we often read the Bible or Bible material, um, Christian books and things after dinner or during dinner. When our kids were young, it seemed much easier while they were eating because when they eat, they're happy. And they'd listen happily. Um, One of my favourite books we read as uh, a family was uh, A Young Person's Guide to Knowing God. And the first, it's about $12 in Kurong if if you'd like to get it for friends or or for your own um, family. But the first story, The White Handkerchief, is really powerful. A teenage boy last sees his parents uh, when he steals from them uh, to, to cover his addiction and then leaves home some 20 years earlier. Uh, he'd left home 20 years earlier, hadn't seen them since. He's made a mess of his life as a middle-aged man and after being released from prison, he dares to contact them again by writing a letter. He doesn't know they still live in the house. I don't know if you still live there. I don't know if you'll want to see me. If you don't, just be out at the time or keep the door locked. I'll understand. But I'm coming at this time on this day and if you want to see me, just put out a white handkerchief as a signal that I can come to you. And so to pick up from the end of the story. And now it was Thursday morning. He had arrived at the end of the street. The house was still there. But having got there, he felt in no hurry at all. He just sat down on the pavement and stared at the stones. Well, he couldn't put it off forever. And after all, they might have moved. If the handkerchief was not there, he would make a few inquiries before leaving the town. He had not yet the courage to face what he would do if they were there and simply did not want him. He got up painfully, for he was stiff from sleeping outside, and the street was still in shadow. Shivering a little, he walked slowly towards the old plane tree where he knew he could see the old house as clear as clear. He would not look until he got there. He stood under the boughs with his eyes shut for a moment, and then he drew a long breath and looked. Then he stood, staring and staring. The sun was already shining on the little red brick house, but it no longer seemed to be a little red brick house, for every wall was festooned with white. Every window was hung with sheets, pillowcases, towels, tablecloths, handkerchiefs and table napkins, and white muslin curtains trailed across the roof from the attic window. It looked like a snow house gleaming in the morning light. His parents were taking no risks. The man threw back his head and gave a cry of relief. Then he ran up the street and straight in at the open front door. Love wins. Let's pray.